What's going on? And welcome into the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek. I'm Daniel Salerson alongside my co-host Jim Eikenhofer of Pelicans.com. We have a great guest for you on this Wednesday. Unfortunately, the Pelicans fell to the Jazz last night, 118 to 102. They'll get reacquainted with the Jazz on Thursday night at 9 p.m. Central. But joining us now is Zach Lowe, senior writer for ESPN, ESPN.com, who wrote a great piece on Brandon Ingram, the rise of Brandon Ingram and the way we watched Brandon over the last year and almost a half. He's certainly on the rise. Zach, I really appreciate the time. How are you? My pleasure, guys. I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Good, good. I really enjoyed the article yesterday, and everyone I've talked to really enjoyed reading about B.I. because of some of the things that we've seen from him and now, you know, reading uh, just some, you know, the other people talking about him. It was I really enjoyed it. So just starting off, uh, what inspired you, I guess, to write this article? So before the bubble um last year I did sort of a let's get reacquainted podcast episode about all 22 teams that went one episode each although a few teams got grouped into big episodes and ironically Stan Van Gundy was my guest for the Pelicans episode uh, before he well before he got hired and in just diving into the team and watching film on them I kind of became really interested in BI because you know I thought obviously he had made a huge leap uh, as a scorer I voted him most improved player barely over Bam Adebayo And, uh, but the more I watched him, the more I thought to myself, I'm kind of less interested in the Brandon Ingram who averages 26, 27 a game and more interested in the one that averages 23, but eight assists, eight rebounds and plays elite defense or as good defense as he can, as he can play like that player to me. Now, maybe you get that and 25, 26 points. Like I'm not going to put a ceiling on BI, but that second player to me is the one that impacts winning, I think, more than the I, – I basically watched Brandon last year and I thought, big leap, great numbers. I don't think he's impacting winning as much as the numbers indicate. This other kind of player would do that. So I just – anytime you see a player who's really good but his growth areas are kind of the the stuff in the game that is not as obvious to see, I get really interested in that. Before we take a deep dive on, on Brandon as a player, what did you learn about him from just interviewing, whether it was trainers, former coaches – his dad, you know, Jerry Stackhouse and mentor, Stan, what did you learn about B.I. when writing this article? I think one of the cool things about Brandon is a lot of people are are pretty protective about who they who they let help them with their games or um, they they are a little bit afraid of really opening themselves up to harsh criticism uh, people really getting inside their games, tinkering with everything. And he's, it's not to say he's not careful about who he chooses for that. He is, he it takes him a long time to trust people, all that, but he's just, whatever you can, whatever you can do to help me, I'm all in. Even if the advice person A is giving me seems a little different than the advice person B is giving me a lot, a lot of guys run from that. Say, Oh, it's too much dissonance. I can't, I can't deal with that. He's just takes it all in and he works and he, he's smart. He's observant. He, he picks, and chooses what he thinks fits his game and that and just also I didn't realize just sort of how how confident he was about his place in the league and what he sees as his destiny in the league that really struck me too before I get to Jim here um you know we talk about him as a Laker and as a Pelicans there's a big difference in the stats obviously but what do you feel like is the biggest difference for him in his rise with the Pelicans I know it's obviously a different situation but what have you noticed about his game as a Laker and how he's developed in the league to where he is now with the Pelicans. Uh, obviously his role is a little more clear cut with the Pelicans, right? Like he's the, he's basically the lead ball handler on the team. I mean, it's an interesting offense because you, you start two point guards, but neither of them are 
the sort of point guard in a traditional sense. Brandon Ingram is the closest thing to a point guard. And then you throw Zion in there. It's interesting, but I, obviously it's the shooting, right? I mean, when people, when he came into the league and with the Lakers, there was this question of, boy, is he ever going to be able to shoot it well enough? Like his jumper, his form is all over the place. His feet are out of whack. His arms are flying behind his head. His arms are like eight feet long. How can we get all that under control? And he didn't just become, I mean, we'll see where the stats end up this year, but he was an, an elite shooter last year on long twos and threes. And that's a really hard, I think people actually underrated how hard that jump was to make from, from a, a below average shooter to a really, really great one on tough looks like that doesn't happen all that often. Zach, you mentioned, um, you know, the way that he receives coaching and instruction from, from other people. Um, how much do you think that factored into him being most improved player and the jump that he's made? Uh, you had a couple really funny anecdotes I thought in the article where people were um, using some colorful language. I guess that would, that would be how I would put it with him. Um, how, how much do you think, based on talking to people, do you think that has, has helped him as far as he's not one of these guys who, who sounds like, you know, he's like, you know, I don't want to be coached a certain way. I, I want to have X, Y, Z. It just seems like he's very receptive in that kind of way. He is very receptive. And the jump shot thing is interesting because a lot of players are very, very protective of their jump shots. And even if you have a funky form, well, that's just the way I shoot it. That's how I, that's how my body does it. That's how I learned. It's always worked for me. I was a star in high school. I was a star in college. Like I'm not, I'm not going to change it. And he, whether it was Brian Keefe in Los Angeles or Fred Vincent with you guys or private trainers that he used, Hey, yeah. What, what do you want me to do? You want me to shoot from here instead of back here? You want put tape on the floor? You want me to line up my feet different? Like whatever you think is going to help me might be uncomfortable for a week, a day, whatever, but I'm going to do it. And I do think it comes from his dad and his parents and the way his dad coached him when he was younger and his older brother, who I didn't really get into in the story and just, you know, this, the game and having it taught to him, on a fundamental level. His dad said, you know, I didn't, I didn't care about fancy dribbling. I didn't care about all that stuff. Like my son was going to be able to see the floor and make the proper pass and make the proper play. And I, I, when you have a father telling you that from a young age, I, I do think that makes a difference. You mentioned how the player that you want him to be eventually, I'm sure the player that he wants to be eventually is a guy who can, you know, be a force at both ends of the floor. This might not be a simple answer or a simple process, but, what do you think he, he is focusing on to become eventually become that like elite defensive player? Um, he he's just sort of focused on every part of defense. I don't I, he, I don't really remember him getting into the weeds so much on defense. Even Stan, when I asked him that question, said, we're just trying to install a scheme. Like we're, we haven't even dove into what everyone individually needs to work on into the weeds to that degree we're just trying to get this base scheme in place get everyone understand it and we'll go from there but some of the things that were mentioned to me were um, making sure he's not worried about screens coming behind him and getting distracted Uh, and that's obviously his big men that's their job to call those out anyway and just sort of remembering like like it just didn't make the piece and now it's making me angry that it didn't make the piece because I meant to put it in there JJ Reddick told me I, I he just the use of his length and JJ told me there was this moment in the Spurs a recent game against the Spurs that we actually looked at in a film session where Brandon was at the nail in the middle of the foul line on a help assignment with both his arms spread out and I was just looking at the film saying holy SHIT he's so long and taking up so much space just by standing there 
that I just think remembering that on a possession to possession basis is sort of step one. But I'd be like, he's an okay defender. I think he'll be a, a good one. Uh, I don't know if it'll ever be Kawhi Leonard, but he does want to be a two way star. When we talk about Brandon in the next steps for him, obviously defense is something that he wants to focus on. And obviously he's not satisfied with his game right now as he has made a big leap, even um, from his Laker days to the Pelicans days. But for you, what's the next step for Brandon to get to that next level? What do you want to see from him to get him to that next level as far as also helping his team, you know, contend for a championship? I think the defense is number one and passing. I actually think Brandon is pretty close to being, He's not all the way there, but he's a really good passer. And I think if you guys had more shooting, he would have he would be averaging a couple more assists <clears throat> per game because he's making the right play. And the ecosystem there just isn't isn't set so that he's going to get as many assists as he probably should. So the playmaking is going to come along. And then there's just like there are just these little sub skills that become more important if and when you guys make the playoffs like it, when teams switch smaller guys onto him can he take them to the post consistently and make them pay when teams switch bigger guys onto him because you're going to see more of that in the playoffs even good big guys quick big guys can he hit step back threes over them can he do all those things that you see the stars do in the playoffs when it becomes much more of a mismatch kind of hunting mismatch hunting game than it is in the regular season before we go back to Jim, uh, it's your overall thoughts on the pelicans they have struggled to start the season five and eight um snapped a five game losing streak being the Kings, but lost last night to the Utah Jazz and obviously um, trying to find their identity a little bit with a new head coach and Stan Van Gundy, a couple new pieces to the starting lineup and Eric Bledsoe and Steven Adams. Obviously, the shooting has been a little bit of a concern, but also, again, Stan goes back to the defense that started out so strong that has struggled in the last few games. But uh, from afar, what have you seen from the Pelicans so far and just how their, their roster is built? Yeah, the shooting piece was very predictable, right? It was the most obvious flaw in the team other than maybe depth. Um, and what, how Alexander Walker's played in the last week, maybe they have another guy they trust to, to help that depth and maybe the shooting too. But there just isn't any space on the floor in the half-court offense. Their half-court offense is bad, um, and that was very predictable. When they don't run, it's hard for them to score. Defensively, Stan is, is, Stan is doing very interesting stuff. I mean, it's very Raptors style of really pressure the ball, really clog the paint, risk allowing a lot of three-pointers um, as, as the cost of that style. I do think the last time I checked 48% of the Pelicans opponents shots were threes. I think the Raptors were at 41% last year, which was the biggest, which is the biggest number ever allowed. I don't know what the tipping point is where even if the theoretical foundation of your scheme is sound and I, and clearly a lot of teams have proven you can give up a lot of threes and have an elite defense. Um, I think they're at the tipping point or past it where it's just the volume is just too high and, and they need to find a way to allow fewer threes. Zach, I was wondering, where do you see the season in the timeline overall for the Pelicans in terms of, you know, everyone wants to win. I mean, people go into seasons and say, you know, it's okay if they don't, if they struggle a little bit, but then the season starts and you don't hear that from fans anymore. You don't hear like, well, it's okay. You know, we got time. Um, but how do you how do you view this season? Is is it kind of just like a stepping stone season, or, or where where is it? Yeah, this is the more I watch them, the more you really remember how seismic the Drew Holiday trade was in terms of, you know, it it Drew's a reliable shooter. He's not a great shooter, but he's a reliable shooter. Lonzo is not, and Bledsoe, who was one of the incoming ingredients, is not really. And then George Hill was a very reliable shooter, and they moved him along. Um, for for draft equity and 
I just think that that telegraphed that this year is going to be sort of a holding pattern. The, the Pelicans team, the next Pelicans team that is legitimately good, not just makes the playoffs, because this team could make the playoffs. I mean, it's in, on the table, you get into the play-in, whatever. Like, it's not like the playoffs are impossible. But I don't think this team is going to be, you know, really, really threatening to do serious damage in the playoffs this year. The next Pelicans team that reaches that level will look a lot different around Ingram and Zion than, than this one is, than this one does, I think. And that and the Drew trade, I think, telegraphed a little bit of playing the long game. And when you look at Zion, you know, who's still finding his NBA body and finding his NBA conditioning, I think it, I think it makes sense. Wanted to ask you one before I go back to Daniel, um, not specifically to the Pelicans, but just as far as the work that you do um, in the film you watch, I was wondering, can you kind of describe uh, like how you watch games during the season? Are you DVRing a bunch of games? Are you, I mean, cause obviously people that read your work, not only see the, the detail that you have when you're trying to cover all 30 teams is very difficult to get into that kind of specifics that you do with, with all the teams, but also just the fact that you're able to implement like video clips and that kind of thing. So I guess I was just wondering like how, how you could, how you do that during the season. I would imagine that there's got to be a time crunch too, that there's only 24 hours in the day. Yeah, there are only 20. That turns out to that checks out. There are only 24 <laughs> hours. Um, Back checking. <laughs> so, so I watch um, two games a night and that's, that's like religion for me. Very rarely, like only like a James, a James Harden trade will derail that. Uh, Cause I have to do lots of other stuff when something like sure. that happens. But, um, and I don't, watch them in real time because I can watch a game in an hour and 15 minutes instead of two and a half hours. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I cut the time in half. Uh, and for the most part, I don't do anything else while I'm watching games. I'm not, I don't tweet even when I'm at games, when we used to be able to go to games, I don't have Twitter up. Uh, I, I don't talk to Jackie McMullen jokes that I'm her favorite person to sit next to at games. Cause I'm the only one that doesn't want to talk to her. Like I just want to watch the game. Um, <laughs> And I don't text. I, I may text people who work for teams that I happen to be watching, you know, questions or comments that I see while I'm watching the game. And then I have a file up all the time of just sort of interesting clips that I want to keep track of. And I just t- write the timestamps down and ESPN can turn those into video magic for me. But I do think yeah. just like watching the game is very important. And then I, I take, I take, I, I make that a big part of my job and two games a night. It's, it's a lot. And it, but it allows me to see every team, you know, and I try to space it out. So I see every team relatively equally, certainly by the end of the year, I'll see the best teams a little more. Cause there are just some of those flashbulb games you have to watch like bucks nets. You have to watch, yep. um, you know, Lakers Clippers, you have to watch. Uh, but it allows me to get a look at every, uh, at every team pretty equally. Before I let you go, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the Pelicans in the long game potentially, and it seems like there's uh Sometimes the difference between how a and I know we try to avoid the big market versus small market, but it seems to be obviously with the Pelicans that since David Griffin has taken over that there is a little bit of a long game to this and building around cornerstones. How big of a difference is it for seeing a team like the Pelicans? And you talk about maybe not being that championship contender and David even doesn't like using that that C word around, but how (laughs) far away they are. Um but seeing the pieces that they have compared to a team in a bigger market that the pressure is you gotta win now in one or two years. How big of a difference is it being a team like the Pelicans that has to rely more on a draft and getting the pieces around your cornerstones compared to a team that can just grab a superstar like the Nets doing right now and, and try to go all in right right at the moment? 
It, it's certainly different. And that's why there was a lot of concern among some small market teams when they tried to reform the lottery uh, the first time. Now it ended up passing, but you know, the lottery is sort of their way of, you know, we, we're not going to get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to come here together. We've got to find another way to get stars that works for us. But the Pelicans, I, you know, look, they have two potential superstars. I don't think Ingram and Zion, I think it's a little early to call them superstars. When I say superstars, like top 10 to 12 player, I don't think either of them is there yet, but certainly Zion offensively is absolutely ridiculous. And a lot of teams in your, in that spot don't have anything like that infrastructure. And then you throw in all the picks they have, you know, I think Houston did a great job getting all those picks from Brooklyn, all those swaps from Brooklyn, you know, right now the Pelicans have, the Pelicans are in the conversation for whatever star player ever becomes available. And I think they're in that conversation ahead of Oklahoma city only because their talent is ahead of Oklahoma city. Oklahoma city has no real reason to rush in to try to get the next James Harden because you know, who's he going to play with? They don't really have other than Shea Gilders Alexander. They're so far away. I think the Pelicans are in a great spot. They can sort of have it both ways and, and see what comes up for them. Before I let you go, you know, we talk, uh, we talk to other people around the league and trying to gauge this season. You know, it's a 72-game season, lack of training camp. You're playing every other day. It's kind of hard to gauge where teams are right now. For you, what's your sample size as far as figuring out if this team is the real deal or they need a little bit more time or maybe this is just not going to work out for them? For you, how long is it going to take for you to kind of establish which teams are going to be contending later on in, in June and July and which teams are, you know, maybe a year or two away? Normally, I think you're about there by now. I mean, it's we're 15 games into the season, thereabouts. Um, that's that's enough information to tell you who's really good and who's just okay in a normal season. This season, I mean, the Sixers are nine and five. You saw what happened to their team. Um, Denver is seven and seven. They've had a strange season with MPJ and a couple other things. And like Dallas, I just don't even know like what to write about Dallas, what to say about Dallas. They just, they have half a team um, and they've had half a team for a while now. So this season is going to be a little bit weirder, particularly when you throw in an early season trade, like we had last week. But I think by now, you know, a lot about, you know, th- th- there are some cases where you just have to look at the schedule, like Memphis is seven and six, but their schedule has been so bad that I'm not sure how much you could read into that. So we're still at the point where the schedule can have a huge influence on it, but I don't, I don't think there are a lot of mysteries uh, in terms of just overall team quality at this point. As Zach Lowe, senior writer for ESPN, ESPN.com. Again, if you haven't checked out the article, uh, make sure you do so on the rise of Brandon Ingram, a must read for sure. And Zach, we, we really enjoy following your work and what you do around the league. Um, one of the best follows in the NBA. How can folks follow you on Twitter? Uh, Zach Lowe underscore NBA, I think is what it is. I've, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I think Zach Lowe underscore NBA, and uh, they can listen to my podcast, The Low Post, which comes out uh, usually twice a week if I'm on my game. Always a great listen for sure. Zach, I really appreciate the time. My pleasure, guys. Be safe down there. Good stuff there from Zach Lowe. Again, we've been trying to get him on the show for a while, and it's no knock on him. He's a very busy guy that does a lot of great work, and when he wrote the Brandon Ingram piece, uh, he was very gracious enough to join us. So the fact that we got 20 minutes with him, was awesome. And Jim, you know, we're talking about this road trip. Unfortunately, the Pelicans are one in three on the road trip after losing last night to the Jazz, 118 to 102. But I think the beauty of facing a team twice now is the fact that you can make the adjustments after one game heading into Thursday night's game against the same team. And I feel like the three-point shooting, we've talked about it with Zach a little bit, has to be the point of emphasis with Utah hitting 21 threes last night with the Pelicans only hitting six. You know, we, we've talked a 
a little bit throughout the season about the nature of the schedule where you're playing every other day. I think there's only been one exception to that. So there hasn't been, you don't have in season these stretches of a couple days where you can practice. So really a lot of the improvement, I think this season, especially early in the year is going to come on the court and during games. And like you said, I think this is a perfect um, example and circumstance for you to try to show some of the improvement that you can make on defense playing against the same team, two games in a row. For me, um, the three-point shooting obviously kind of set up Utah, but it also set them up for other problems that the they were causing for the Pelicans. It seemed like um, in the second half they started back-cutting, and it's like, okay, you're running out to guys and you're trying to help, and now all of a sudden your man is cutting behind you for a layup. And uh, th- there's just a lot of, um, I think, some kind of detail stuff and even kind of focus stuff defensively as far as just being locked in the whole time. And it's a lot, a lot easier for me to sit here and say to do that than it is to do it on the court. But um, I definitely think that this is an opportunity for them to show that they could play better defensively against the same team and hopefully do a lot better on the perimeter, but just overall defensively as well. All right. So the Pelicans will have another crack at the Utah jazz tomorrow night, 9 PM central time. It is the second game of a TNT doubleheader. So Grab your coffee, another late one for the Pelicans. They wrap up the West Coast trip on Saturday. Then they're back home for their longest homestand of the first half with six games starting Monday with San Antonio. Jim, I appreciate the time. I know uh, it was a rough go last night, but uh, hopefully better better days ahead for this Pelicans team. They'll be off today, and uh, we'll see how they fare tomorrow. Yeah, they need to finish this road trip strong. It would be a real positive thing if they can get a win, maybe hopefully two here Thursday and then Saturday against Minnesota, but enjoyed talking with you today and speaking with Zach Lowe. He's such an interesting guy. I I really love reading his stuff and you can tell that he's very invested in the game and loves the game. So I think that that's one of the reasons why uh, people prefer what he does as his work, just because you can see the passion that he has that comes out. We'll have a Fox Sports Friday for you as Aaron Hardigan and David Wesley will join the show to talk about everything Pelicans. We had some fun with them last time and hope to have some more fun with them on Friday. And don't forget Pelicans Weekly tomorrow with Todd Graffiniti and Akeel Alexander-Walker. That'll be a fun show as well. ESPN New Orleans, 6 p.m., the flagship station for your New Orleans Pelican. All right, for Zach Lowe, Jim Eikenhofer, I'm Daniel Salerson. Thanks for listening to the Pelicans podcast presented by Seeky.